0: Good morning, and I greet you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you have not already done so, then I would love to invite you to join me in Micah chapter 6. Micah chapter 6, as we continue our two-year study through the Bible uh, with the banner of Here is Love. And uh, Pastor Matt mentioned at the beginning of today's gathering that today uh, is a bit unique in the sense that we've condensed a lot of things in order that we can be able to enjoy fellowship together over a meal. And uh, some things have recently occurred to me. We plan, I think, six or seven of these uh, in the year, and uh, I think I'm preaching every single one of them. So I think somebody is uh, sending... Uh, a, a clear message. I, I, I think uh, that I've been demoted to the minor leagues of preaching, and uh, maybe I'll uh, uh, maybe maybe I'll get bumped up uh, to be able to preach a full bloom sermon. So I will ask you to listen rather quickly uh, this morning and uh, hear the word of the Lord. Uh, but before reading that, I want to once again just remind you what a precious opportunity we have here. Today, to fellowship with other brothers and sisters in Christ and to consider your life within this Old Testament prophecy. God is speaking to you. The Bible has two categories for people there are the righteous who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and then there are the wicked. Who remain in their sins, storing up wrath for themselves that God will pour out upon you. That's how the Bible describes us as human beings. We fall in one of those categories. And this prophecy, chapter 6, speaks to both conditions. And so when we consider this question, what does God require of us? Then consider your own spiritual condition. Consider your own standing before the Lord. Are you in any way trying to prop yourself up before the holy God? Or are you humbly walking before your God? With that in mind... Let's worship as we read Micah chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Hear now what the Lord is saying. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Listen, you mountains, to the indictment of the Lord, and you, enduring foundation of the earth, because the Lord has a case against his people. Even with Israel, he will dispute. My people, what have I done to you, and how have I wearied you? Answer me. Indeed, I brought you up from the land of Egypt, I and ransomed you from the house of slavery, and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. My people, remember now what Balak king of Moab counseled and what Balaam's son of Beor answered him. And from Shidom to Gilgal, so that you might know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come to the Lord and bow myself before the God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does the Lord take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The voice of the Lord will call to the city, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear, O tribe, who has appointed its time? May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Father, we do pray that you would be gracious and merciful to us this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes to see and our heart to believe wonderful things that you say about yourself from your word. We ask these things in Christ's mighty name. Amen. If you read through Micah, two things are clear, sin and judgment. And so today I want us to kind of keep in mind this metaphor of a courtroom when we think about this prophecy That is being relayed to us. Um, I I think this will be helpful as we try to situate um, Micah's prophecy during his 20 to 25 year ministry. Micah can be translated, who is God? Which interestingly is how this prophecy is concluded in chapter 7 by answering that very question. Micah prophesied during the Judean reigns of Jotham and Ahaz. And he's believed to be a contemporary with Isaiah and Hosea as an 8th century prophet. What's unique about Micah as it relates to the other minor prophets is that uh, most of the minor prophets that we've been reading through, there's uh, a considerable amount of sin on Israel's part. And then there's uh, the coming judgment that God is pronouncing upon them. And there's the plea to repent. And there's the promise for after. After their repentance, there's a promise for God restoring them and restoring and welcoming their fellowship back with him. And this is a unique occurrence where Israel and Judah did that. And so for about 100 years, uh, they enjoyed living in light of having their um, uh, fellowship with God restored because they listened. They repented. They obeyed. And so our outline this morning is mainly two statements, God's case against his people, again, that metaphor of a courtroom, and God's requirement for his people. So God's going to state a case against his people, all the evidence is lined up against them, and God is going to not just only ask what he requires of them, but he's going to show them, he's going to demonstrate what is required for them. So first of all, God's case against his people, which is their condition and their calamity. We see this in the first five verses that we read in just a few moments ago. But chapter one in Micah gives us an idea for the case against his people. Chapter one, we see, let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. So why is this important as we think about this prophecy? God is speaking from his place of worship. What has he against them, what he has against them is a, this is a worship issue. Sin is a worship issue. God is speaking from and God is speaking from and is based upon his very own holiness. So when you consider this, again, this metaphor of a courtroom and you think about a judge that presides over this, what kind of authority does an earthly judge have? If we're just out in civilian life, downtown, on the street, uh, on the corner, can a judge does he have the kind of authority to be able to uh, make a sentence on your behalf? Outside of the court, outside of his judicial desk, he has no abiding authority whatsoever. This is obviously not true with God, but it is important for us to know from where God is speaking and of what essence he speaks He is speaking. From his temple. And he is speaking based upon. His very own holiness. It's the transgression of Jacob. Which is speaking of Samaria. He describes her wound as being incurable. It's for the sins of the house of Israel. Disaster. God describes. Has come near the gate of Jerusalem. So we see the Lord drawing near in judgment. In chapter two, a woe is pronounced against those who devise wickedness and those who work evil upon their bed. When morning arrives, they do the very evil that they have planned. Verse 7: Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Do not my words, Micah say in this, do good to him who walks uprightly? Lately the Lord says, My people has risen up as an enemy of him. So we see the case that God has brought against his people, according to this prophecy, comes in the form of three questions. The first one is this, what have I done to you? What have I done to you? Then he asks, have I wearied you? After which God says, answer me. And then the third is our theme, what do I require? What have I done to you? Have I wearied you? And what do I require? This is the righteous judge, the faithful judge who is asking these questions. Verse one, hear now what the Lord is saying. Hear now what the Lord is saying. This is a running theme throughout all of the Bible. We can look back several verses in Deuteronomy. that, And I'll just uh, quote one in reference, chapter 13. You shall follow the Lord your God and fear him. You shall keep his commandments. Listen to his voice. Serve him and cling to him. First Samuel 3. Eli telling Samuel. Remember Samuel was waking up. Hearing someone say his name. Eli told him to go lie, lay down. And says if you hear it again. For him to say speak O oh, Lord. Speak O oh Lord for your servant is listening. In Proverbs. Listening to God is associated With living securely and at ease at the dread of evil. It's associated with as as an, an admonition to not depart from the very words of God. It's associated with the contrast between the wicked and the righteous, between the one who is wise and the one who is a fool. Hear now what the Lord is saying. God's reminding his people throughout the Bible. That there is no hiding from him. God accurately exposes the sin of his people. And places it in light of his unfailing holy character. Listening to God in this context. Is for the purpose of God dealing honestly with them. About them. So even though God's bringing these things before them. This is his means of grace to them. Running on the same tracks as this theme has been an emphasis here lately at the church um, to stop trying to hide from your sin. John chapter 3, that's what evil people do. They like their sin to remain hidden. But those who are in Christ, those who um, love for their deeds to be exposed, they run to the light so that their deeds can be shown as being wrought from God. So let me ask this question here. When is the last time that you've paused long enough to listen to what the Lord has to say to you? We probably do a better job of laying our request before the Lord and making sure that he is aware of the very things that are pressing in upon us. But do we give sufficient pause in our day-to-day routine for him to be able to speak to us Through his word. Micah 6 answers the question that's posed here. How can the people of God find comfort when God has a case against them? Read what he says in verse 3. My people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? God answers this question in verse 3 with verse 4. I brought you from the land of Egypt and ransomed you from the house of slavery. I sent before you Moses, Ariam, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. You see how he answers this question here. This is what I've done for you. I brought you up from Israel, I ransomed you from the house of slavery. How does the Lord appeal to his people? How does he appeal to his bride? I believe we could summarize the case and the questions. As a loving God appealing to his people in a loving way, what sort of love you, uh, what's, what sort of love are you asking? Unadulterated, unfettered, unrivaled, irresistible, indescribable, unwarranted, unsolicited, matchless, irrefutable, eternal love. this is. The eternal disposition of the father toward his children. So when we say, based on the authority of God's word, you're loved. This is what we have in mind here. What faithful covenant love. Remember, he's he's drawing them back to the counsel of Balak and what Balaam had answered. That you may know the righteous acts of God. So as he's bringing these things before them, he's also bringing his character before them and he's bringing what he has done for them and laying that before them as well. I bought you. I brought you. I ransomed you. I sent to you people who would deliver my words to you. Remember what I have done for you. We see the faithfulness of God on display For his people, even in the midst of bringing a case of their sin against them. Who does that? Who does that other than an an eternal loving father towards his people? And he's doing it so that you can know the righteous acts of the Lord. His acts of vindication. One commentator said the duty of a judge in Israelite lawsuits was to champion the oppressed against their oppressors, to protect and vindicate against wrong treatment. Here, the forensic flavor lingers in that Israel, languishing under Egyptian oppression, found a champion in God who delivers them and puts them on the high road of blessing as his own people. God continues even throughout this, this is why, again, just we need to be reminded of how loved we are in Christ. It's that even in these things, how does God continue to refer to the people in this prophecy? He refers to them as my people. My people. Boyce describes this, verse 8, as a word for people who are willing uh, to all sorts of religious things, but they're not willing to do What is needful, which brings us to our second point, God's requirement. So we considered what God has against him, his case against his people. Now what's God's requirement for his people, their conqueror and their new posture? How should we come before the Lord? What do you say when you are loved in such a firm way? Would any of us, if if, um, after the service today you hear me yelling at my son about something, You might look at that situation a bit differently than if we were near a busy intersection and you hear and you heard me yell at him. Nobody would look at that and think that to be odd because you'd realize how concerned I am about his safety if he's near a busy intersection such as that. God is firm in his desire. So I don't don't want to say that in any other way. God is firm in his desire for all of his commands to be kept. We should never assume that his love is that which is indifferent towards sin. Please understand, God is not indifferent towards sin. My sin, your sin, our sin, all of it required a sacrifice. Something had to be done to cover and forgive our sin. Not in the sense of scooping a gun on the rug, but it had to be satisfied. We know that it cost Christ his life. This is the loving appeal God made with them. I brought you, I ransomed you, I sent to you. But we should know that God appeals to his people with gentle, firm love. That's how God deals with his people. He reminds us that he loves us and he's for us. Gentle, but fine. And it's based upon his holiness. And I think the Christian. At times, it's predisposed to think of God in terms of harshly saying, don't do this or just stop sinning. When we need to understand, the pill is don't do this. Stop sinning because I love you. Stop sinning because I'm holy. Don't you see? Don't you understand what I brought you out of? Don't you see what it took for you to be ransomed? Don't you see who I've sent to you to preach good news to you? Don't you know that I've done all of these things so that you would see my righteous acts? Of course, God's told him what is good because he is good and he has shown this in his glorious perfection. Therefore, what God requires is the imitation of the life of Christ through us. What he requires is Romans 8 on display. The very life of God in your soul. The Gospel of John was written so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that in believing in him, or that in believing we would have life in his name. But right before getting to verse 8, there comes a a series of just really ridiculous questions. Shall we come to God with burnt offerings? Verse 6 and 7. How about yearling calves? Would God take delight in thousands of rams? What about 10,000 rivers of oil? Okay, let me show my commitment by asking, shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts? Would the fruit of my body be acceptable for the sin of my soul? Well, the answer to each of these questions is a resounding no. It's a temporary no, and it is an eternal no. A burnt offering is not what's acceptable. Neither will be calves, oil, or our own firstborn. Why? God's provided something eternally better. Namely, someone more acceptable. God's offering is Christ. Who is an unblemished, spotless lamb the very lamb that john the baptist describes in john 129 who takes away the sin of the world the very lamb that revelation speaks of that was slain before the foundation of the world christ is the firstborn that colossians speaks of and that romans 8 addresses for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son So that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. So this appeal God is making as he's bringing their sin before them. He's clear. This is his kindness. His kindness, we know Romans 2, leads to repentance. So what do you do when your sin's exposed? When you realize there's there's no more hiding that you can do? You come to God. He is the one with whom our soul must reckon. The one who comes before God in humility recognizes he is a criminal and doesn't seek simply to get off the hook. He's not looking for a technicality, as it were. He's not asking for leniency. He's not promising to do better next time. And he's not promising to never commit this act again. No, he understands himself as being eternally inept. He understands himself not as someone who just did something bad, but as a person who is wicked to the core. He agrees with the Bible's description of the sinner and agrees that he is a sinner in need of something more than just a clean record. He needs an expunged life. Matthew Henry said, it's God himself that has shown us what we must do. We need not trouble ourselves to make proposals. The terms are already settled and laid down. He whom we have offended... And to whom we are accountable, has told us upon what conditions he will be reconciled to us. You see how this is eternal love, the case and what's required. Deuteronomy 10, as well as Micah, or excuse me, Deuteronomy 10. Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you? It's the same language that we're looking at here. But to fear the Lord your God, to walk on all his ways and love him. And to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. To keep the Lord's commandments and his statutes, which I'm commanding you today for your good. This is a theme thread throughout the scripture. So what has the Lord required? Verse 8 tells us. Do justice or seek justice. Love kindness and walk humbly with your God. Simeon calls this verse here the sum of all practical religion. Seeking justice means fulfilling mutual obligations in a way that's consistent with God's moral law. How do we think about justice? We understand that we are to value the very things that honor God. What is the Christian's response in seeking justice? It is to seek those very things that are consistent with a society adhering to the clearly laid out, revealed will of God. So we maybe ought to even be careful in terms of um, qualifiers that we put before justice that's there. Is there any other justice? that we should be working for and laboring toward other than the justice that's supplied in Christ. Isaiah 42, this description about Jesus. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So that seek and to do justice, to love kindness, to love mercy, to love the things of God, to walk humbly before their God, which is the foundation of all Christian living. If there's no walking before God in humility, it matters not what you love and it matters not what you seek. It's futile. Let me say that again. If you're not walking humbly before God, it matters not what you're going after. Love what you want to love and you can seek what you want to seek. But if it's not rooted in genuine Holy Spirit wrought humility before God, then you're laboring in vain. Humility before God is the pervasive posture of the Christian as we walk in constant awareness before the living God. Simeon said to walk humbly with him in a believing dependence upon his grace to help us and his mercy to pardon our defects. Without this, our attention to relative duties will be of no avail. This chiefly distinguishes the true Christian from a proud, self-righteous Pharisee. So this is what God has required. And you see the difference here. You can contrast what's, being, what, what, what's been said in the first nine verses With what follows for the wicked in verse 10 through 16. You see the contrast between the loving appeal of God toward his people and what the wicked should expect if they do not turn to God in worship. Is there yet a man in the wicked house, along with treasures of wickedness, in a short measure that is cursed? Can I justify wicked scales and a bag of deceptive weights? For the rich men of the city are full of violence, her residents speak lies. And their tongue is deceitful in their mouth. So also I will make you sick, striking you down, desolating you because of your sins. You will eat, but you will not be satisfied, and your vileness will be in your midst. You will try to remove for your safekeeping. But if you will not preserve anything, and what do you preserve, I will give to the sword. You will sow, but you will not reap. You will tread the olive, but will not anoint yourself with oil. And the grapes, but you will not drink wine. The statutes of Omri and all the works of the house of Ahab are observed. And in their devices you walk. Therefore, I will give you up for destruction. And your inhabitants for derision. And you will bear the reproach of my people. So you see the contrast that's here. Which God. Or how will you stand before the holy just God. Though Micah sets up like a courtroom where God states the evidence that he, is against, that he has against his people, what we really see is not a justice system for his people predicated on condemnation, but a loving yet firm appeal from our Heavenly Father that the very things he requires from us are The very virtues he has supplied in and through the atoning sacrifice of his son, our savior. Again, I want to draw our attention back to the courtroom metaphor. God is the righteous judge. And we are the ones who stand before him either in judgment resulting in condemnation or in peace because our sin has been removed. We will stand before him and an account of our life will be given. We will be judged either according to our righteousness or according to Christ's righteousness. We will be judged based on our faithfulness or his faithfulness through us. So God has told us what he requires. Love, justice, mercy, humility. None of these things are natural in us. Christ was given what is required of us, that we seek the one in whom these attributes are found and that we walk humbly with the very God who loves us and who is just towards us and has given us mercy in Christ. Every other religion out there is a works based religion that over promises what they cannot guarantee. But in biblical Christianity. You cannot give God anything. None of the very things mentioned in verse 6 and 7, none of those were acceptable to God. None of those were helpful. None of those were useful. But according to Micah chapter 7, verse 18 through 20, who is a God like you? Who pardons iniquity and passes over the rebellious act of the remnant of his possession? He does not retain his anger forever, but he delights in unchanging love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, you will cast all their sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and unchanging love to Abraham, which you swore to our fathers from the days of old. So take heart. Take heart that God has given to us Christ. Take heart that what God has given to us is Christ. All the things that he's required of us, he has given to us in Christ. Let's pray.